Could we could we do our first one just me and you? Would that be possible? Uh yes, but there is uh, actually no problem with uh, the video. That in fact, when you were watching the videos that you have seen, you're not paying attention to anything uh, about the individual other than the fact that his questions are good for you. I, I guess my my one fear, if I'm if I'm honest, is um. I really want to dialogue with you. I, I want to be very open. And uh -huh. um, I guess just that first introduction, um, I, get, I get a little nervous that I'll, I'll inhibit myself. Uh, well, let's just uh, keep the video going and I'll talk to you a little bit and then you can relax and then it sure. won't matter anymore. Or if you want something that uh, you to talk about specifically off camera, then we can turn the camera off. Or maybe maybe if if at the end we change our mind, yeah. just not post it, maybe? Uh, then we don't post it, right. Okay. There's no, there, we're completely easy. <laughs> but right now, just in this moment, everything is still okay. <laughs> Um, I, I agree with you on that one. I'm there. <laughs> All right. So um, the position that we started talking about, we can do it this way by starting with the, um, an analogy or a story or a metaphor. And that metaphor is Western school. Where you have a classroom and you have a teacher and you have a bunch of students. All right, meditation systems seem to have gotten that kind of formality where there's one main teacher and then there's a lot of volunteers around him, but they're really just students. Yeah. Yeah. That means then that everybody keeps looking back to that teacher rather than looking at it as a community. Now, surprisingly enough, the community starts as soon as the teacher disappears in the sense of recess. The kids can actually play together and and much if you recollect much of what you learned and what you remember about school was not in the classroom anyway sure sure all right so from that perspective um what we look at in meditation retreats and places like that is is that everybody's doing their own thing and their own relationship with with a teacher who is so remote because there's so many people wanting something from him but in Thailand, when I got to watch Suan Mok, I found out that it was a completely different situation. And that was that it was all about relationship in the community, how each individual fit in and how he related to the teacher and how the teacher related to him. Okay, and that a teacher then will spend in uh, a fairly amount of, of time with one student. And then another time he'll spend quite a lot of time with another student that in fact, uh, Achan Po would move around the Wat, and nobody needs uh, seemed to know where he was. To where, in fact, he was probably just visiting some monk out there. Yeah, just passing the time of day and being friends. Yeah. Now, in, in my travels, um, despite looking, I never found that relationship with a teacher who could really just, uh, you know, 
take, I take know. That. I looked all over India for it without even knowing what I was looking for. Yeah. What I was actually thought I was looking for was magic. I, I yeah. Um, I was. I, I never. I went. I didn't go that road. But I was. I was looking for Dharma, and uh, it almost feels like for me. I had a teacher recently tell me um, in a Zen uh, group I sit with when I told him a bit about my practice and he said, you know, you've been trying to do this all on your own. And in some ways I kind of gave up on finding a teacher and mm -hmm. really like, like the horn of the bull just said, okay, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to look at reality. I'm going to realize what is here. And, uh, and that's incredibly lonely. Um, yeah. Ah, in a way, yes, aloneness is lonely until you have a friend to teach you how to be alone. Well, there you go. <laughs> and the only kind of teacher who can teach you how to be alone is, some, is someone who has mastered aloneness sure. his own, on his own sure. with help. Yeah. Uh, that that's in fact, um, one, it's actually for me an important sutta. It's number, uh, I think it's 112, but it may be 108 in the Majjhima Nikaya, where Ananda immediately after the Buddha's death was out on Vindabad and he ran across a, a Brahmin and they got into a conversation and the Brahmin was asking him, what's the difference between the Arahats or the monks that are left and the Buddha himself who is now dead? And Ananda pointed out that there was actually only one difference, and it's a small difference. But it's significant in the sense that the Buddha discovered the path on his own and then was able to transmit it. In fact, in the beginning, the Buddha says, hey, nobody's going to get this. Nobody's going to understand this. I might as well not even bother to teach. And then he reflected on, oh, well, who are the people who could get this? And he thought about his teachers, most of which were dead. But going back to that point about Ananda, Ananda says, really, once you understand or once, let us say it like this, uh, every human being is a pile of sticks of a prepared fire that has not been started. And all it takes is just a little spark from another fire. And now you've got it going, sure, but sure. you can rub sticks together for years and not get a fire going. If you don't know how to how to handle it, it's not going to. If you don't know how to handle it and you don't know what's how to do sparks and things like that, then you're not going to be able to get it going. And so um, what I found at Watson Mope was a community to where the monks actually cared about each other and cared about uh, me as I was learning to care about them. I, I just want to pause real quick and say that I can, I'm resonating with a part of you right now where you're making me recall your own story and how when you got to Watsoimok, I remember you saying how you felt like you were finally home, like you felt mm -hmm. like you were, you were loved basically, right? And I, I, I'm acknowledging right now hearing you that that is something I've wanted for a long time to not just be looking to run my sticks alone, but to say, where's the mm -hmm. fire? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, so in that regard, the supramane dhamma is not just a supramundane dhamma, that in fact, the supramundane dhamma can only be supramundane 
when it's in a community or a sangha. That this is what the real issue of the triple gem, no doubt with all the stuff that you've done, you've already got quite a lot of background. And so I'm going to kind of rely on the fact that you know what I'm talking about. That's what the triple gem is, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And yet in Western Buddhism, we don't have hardly any Buddha at all and no Sangha at all. And everybody is madly scrambling in the Dhamma, but they don't know how to rub two sticks together. Okay, but it's from the Sangha that nurtures the Buddha that the spark then can be transmitted. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that there are many, many examples of how that operates, but it really can say, I can get it down to an expression of this. Uh, and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is really big on the concept that we have a duty to the Dhamma. Yes. And that duty that we have to the Dhamma is pervasive. It's not just religious Buddhist stick. No, no, no. It is, in fact, that we all have duties. And, and the clearest and most obvious example is, is that you have a duty to take the next breath. Yes. I, and if you I, I don't, was, die. Sure. I, I, was, I was in a conversation with, um, I'm sorry for interrupting. Uh, no, you're not interrupting. Okay, okay. This is a dialogue. Yeah, okay. so so I I was I'm been in dialogue with a friend of mine or a teacher of mine who's a a Trappist monk, and uh, we've been talking for about eight months. And a month or two ago, in the middle of one of our conversations, I had this like kind of insight revelation moment, where I realized that as I sit here talking to my friend or talking to you right now, you and I speak, but what allows us to speak is the cosmos all functioning, allowing me to sit here and take this breath. And that in the Western mind, there's this idea of entitlement to pleasure or to, to entertainment, to escapism, to whatever kind of, you know, all the while there are bees pollinating flowers, there's, there's ocean tides churning up, you know, coral reefs, there is, there is the movement of planets and stars, and all of these things interdependently allow me to sit here and talk to you. And so the view that I can then sit here and just proverbially fuck off while everything allows me to be, that I do not owe something back to the dog mm-hmm. to be, right? It's, it's almost like this um, like late stage egoic cancerous view of the world that I simply can be like this little king on my hill while my hill is supported by all of creation. And I, and I, think, uh-huh. I think that's where Precisely. in my mind, yeah, and I think, I think that's where in my mind, when you, when you say you, you owe something to Dhamma or to Buddha, it's not a moral code system. It's a literal aspect of reality. Okay. That our humanity mm-hmm. is indebted to to Buddha, to creation, to to God in the Western mind, whatever language doesn't matter, mm-hmm. and that that's how about reality, or maybe yeah. our environment. We can Let's, use easy language for it without having to get way out there. Well, so, or, and that language isn't that language is only out there, just like Buddhism, where it becomes misconstrued. At the base mm-hmm. of it, it's just it's. There's no further than just mm-hmm. you, you and I speaking, and that's. 
So there you are on top of your world with no duties to the environment because the environment is taking care of you. And yet there is a duty and the duty is, is to recognize that and to appreciate it because otherwise you're going to just sit there and be miserable. So part of our duty to the Dhamma is to see the Dhamma, to recognize the Dhamma and to begin to appreciate it. And so at a at a kind of a deeper level then, or going in that direction, we can say now then that our duty to the Dhamma is both friendliness and honesty. That we need those two aspects and that the Buddha was very, very big on each one of them. Uh, That in fact, in one sutta, the name of it, by the way, is the half sutta where Ananda comes to the Buddha having just left Sariputta, where Sariputta had told Ananda that friendship is half the Dhamma. Yes, yes. Which and, is and, in fact, the, and the Buddha says, don't say that Ananda, don't say that Ananda, the noble friendship is all of the Dhamma, right? Yeah, that's all there is, is just yeah. the friendship, exactly yeah. so. Well, when we do our duty to the Dhamma of being friendly with ourselves within, which is half the Dhamma, and then friendly with the rest of the environment on the outside, then we're doing our duty to the Dhamma and we get the benefits or the fruits of the uh, the labors of doing our duty to the Dhamma. And if we don't do the duty to the Dhamma, we're, that means we're not friends with ourselves on the inside and we're not friends with, ourself, with the environment that we're in, including all the people in it. Sure. And we wind up being miserable because we're not doing our duty to the Dhamma. Yeah. That's a kind of death and a kind of prison. Yeah. It's suffering. And exactly, exactly. So we can now say that then uh, our duty to the Dhamma of being friendly and honest, that is what Sangha is really all about. Now, the word Sangha to the Western mind merely means, oh, it's all those monks in the Wat. And they call that organization a Sangha. To where no... Uh, that's actually just an example of so, sangha if it's working. For for the last for the last maybe two years of my practice, um, three years or so, when I when I you know about the the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, um, I I've begun to think of sangha actually in everything, um, you know even even in in the neighbor that I don't know uh, and realizing that all of these things allow me to practice. Mm-hmm. That all, like if, if I if I can be wise enough, everything is is teaching me. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you could then go so far as to say that the Buddha is that which you're sparking from within, and the Sangha is the environment mm-hmm. that you're living in, and the Dhamma is the relationship between the Buddha and the Sangha. That's that's beautiful. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. And then you have, um, you have the internal, external, and that, that mediation between the two, mm-hmm. which is the, the kind of pathway of Dhamma or Tao. Right. So in the Western mentality, the language that you would have is, is that everybody who is getting interested deeply in the Dhamma, they want to become a meditation teacher. Okay. And I began to understand a long time ago that meditation was not what needed to be taught. 
but it was Dhamma that needed to be taught. But in recent years, and especially most frequent, most recently in the past couple of years, I began to understand that no, what really needs to be taught is Sangha, because that's what Western Buddhism is missing. That in fact, Western Buddhism is bought into the Western business model. Hmm. And it's capitalistic. And in that regard, it's, it's almost like uh, dragging the Dhamma into the marketplace and and hawking it off for sale. I, I can definitely see that, especially, um, I mean, I, I have had the privilege of, I do know some good sanghas around here. Um, I sat meditation this morning with one and actually evening with except with another one. But I, but I think that the Western mind, um, there is this, this foolish individualism going on and, mm -hmm. and almost this kind of individualism or persona approach to everything. Like you say, where like we've, we, we view everything as consumption based, even the Dhamma, even Buddha, right? It's very easy to become a Buddhist as another kind of, uh, what possession or identity rather than like you say um the west is kind of missing that the concept like or the experience of buddha right exactly the dhamma. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. you see when when uh the, i'm guilty uh, of that too i'm sorry it's just right no problem when, no I, when, problem. I, when the buddha dhamma spread in asia it always spread with a small group of monks who would go from place to place and they carried the Sangha and the Dhamma and the Buddha with them. But Western Buddhism didn't come to, uh, to the West that way for Western people. That in fact, there are huge numbers of <clears throat> the various Asian communities that are now in the West that they brought the thing with them, but the Westerners don't even know that, that the Asians already know how to do this kind of a chauvinistic kind of thing that all oh, I want Buddhism, I'm going to get Buddhism from a Westerner who speaks my language and writes books and things like that, or go to retreat when <clears throat> much cleaner Buddhism is available in the Asian community because they are brought over to build their temples. They have brought good monks. They know what a good monk is. That's one of the things that I began to understand about the Thai people and, the, and all, by inference also the Laotian people, which I've been quite a lot about, is they're not stupid. They know what a good monk is, hmm. all right? And so if they know what a good monk is, the good monks also know what a good monk is and everything is, is working that way. And so the monks who are new and want to come out of Asia to the United States for this, that or the other reason, the Asian people are not going to spend the time and the money and the visa and all of that to bring him over. No, they're going to go after the old dude who's sitting there happily and doesn't care about coming to America at all. And he's the one they want to coax into bringing. Okay, so in that regard, we have a number of very, very beautiful, high quality people who were really worth getting to know in the United States and the Westerners are not even associating with them, they're associating with each other. Sure, sure. Or reading, reading commentary of commentary of commentary rather than going to Sutta. Mm -hmm. Or a better way of saying it, actually, that's a very highfalutin word. Why don't we say it this way? Opinions about opinions yeah. about opinions yeah. about opinions. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and so um, 
this is what we're working on is to get a community going, to get people who uh, so, so many students would come and says, I don't have anyone to practice with. I'm so glad you're on the internet, Damarato, so that I can spend time with you, at least with someone. And I says, hey, you guys can go off together and spend Dhamma time together. Mm-hmm. That we need to build some Sangha to where everybody's in the community and everybody has got everybody else's best interest mm-hmm. in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is where it really uh, begins to uh, gain some real solidity in the sense that the real um, super mundane dhamma of the Buddha can only be, um, uh, let us say, protected and closed within a Sangha, and that th- that is uh, encased, then that Sangha is encased as a triple gem inside a very, very beautiful ornate box. And that beautiful ornate box now is what we'll call Buddhism. Sure. But the real issues about that ornate box, and you can see so many teachers that are selling that box as yeah. how beautiful it is and all of that, but they're missing some of the most important, deeper qualities of it. Inside of it. Yeah. Uh-huh. That in fact, you can't sell friendship. That's one thing that cannot be sold. The friendship cannot be bought and sold, that there are a whole lot of rich people that have a whole lot of hangers on, gold diggers and and whatnot like that, but everybody's in it for what they can get out of it rather than in it for the community. Mm -hmm. Um, One way of saying it, in fact, that if you have an organization that has friendship but no honesty, it's going to wind up being a mob. Sure. If you have honesty, but no friendship, you're going to have a war. But if you have both honesty and friendship, then that community is going to be internally honest with itself while protecting itself from the outside. Sure. And that's basically how the Sangha operates, that there's an awful lot of uh, truth and wisdom and uh, pointing fingers at one another happily so that we can gain our own internal freedom. But if a monk misbehaves within the Sangha, then uh, the other monks doesn't, for instance, want his parents to know because his parents will have uh, figured they've lost face and they'll go take their young son out of the the monkhood. And he could easily be rehabilitated. And so it's better not to stir, spread the dirty laundry in your, unless there's a reason for it. And, and the one main thing that would be a reason for break, making things open would be what is called a Sangha decessive. When someone's actually trying to break up the Sangha, that becomes public. Yeah. Okay. But other than that, we take care of one another happily and, and you're rather of- than blaming each other and competing with each other. And your, your, your comment a few seconds ago about the rehabilitation is the point to the fact that we are healed in community, ultimately. And mm-hmm. that Sangha is, is kind of the rectifying force of the individual's path towards awakening. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the mirror, the reflection. Yeah. And the mirror is a clean mirror, and it yes. gives good reflection. That's yeah. the honesty. Uh-huh. But, but when... what. And maybe in the West, this is another thing we don't seem to do, or 
sometimes don't do is that when the reflection is not pretty, it's easy to kind of throw somebody under the bus. I mean, I mean, just look at look at our news cycles. I mean, I, I don't follow them too closely, but so often it's filled with this public figure ashamed and, and one after another, but there's no mm -hmm. real talk about rehabilitation of individuals. It's fine. It's, well, look at prisons. Prisons are not designed for rehabilitation or no. designed for punishment. No, yeah. well, 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 what about the ruler on the child's hand? Is that that ruler that's going to be slapping that child's hand? Is that for punishment or rehabilitation? Yeah. Yeah. How about the dunce? I mean, I don't know what they do in schools nowadays. I was in school a long time ago when they still had rulers. <laughs> 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 and they'd hold your hand out like that or a paddle or something like that. And the answer is, is that those things are merely for revenge yeah. and uh, uh, blame and have nothing to do with either friendship or rehabilitation. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Sangha is all about rehabilitating each other until we're cleaning up our act. Which, which again makes complete sense because the Sangha is the place where we are not we are not awakened yet and that Sangha is there to help us move forward so it's 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 inevitable that obscur obscurations will come that that mm -hmm. will come up to the surface um, exactly from, so yeah. so if if you are in a let us say in a want where you have a few noble monks then that nobility is going to rub off on other people just sure. by association. That in fact, when one person gets freaked out and then another person gets freaked out and then everybody gets freaked out, that's typical. That's in fact, MSNBC and Fox News. <laughs> yeah. But if someone gets freaked out, and another person sees that freak out, but he says, wait a minute, there's no reason for you to freak out. Or maybe several people get freaked out, but a few of them don't. Then everybody can become unfreaked out simply because, uh, let us say, there was not enough freak out energy sure. amassed yep. to overcome the happy joy of the nobles. All right. So what we're actually talking about here that we can put into an expression that we call guilt by association. Right. That, in fact, if you uh, we know for sure about the guilt of, uh, by association and wrongdoing, it's very easy to understand that if you hang out in the bar for hours and hours every day, the more likely is, is that you're going to be drinking alcohol than if you weren't in the bar. And that if you're associating with alcoholics, the more likelihood is that you're going to become an alcoholic. Yeah. And if you continue to associate with alcoholics, you will begin or you will continue to drink. This is exactly what AA is based upon is, is that when people start uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, the very first step is that they have to stop associating with the old friends who were drinking. But we can see this in many things also that when a, uh, a young man joins the military, he doesn't do it during the day and sleep at home with his parents at night. No, they want him all the time. He's sure. going to be completely immersed into the military. Sure. Um, and other things like this. So when you are being associated with 
uh, noble high class people, their noble high classness will rub off just like the alcoholic will rub off. So whatever you associate with will be affecting you. This is actually one of the aspects of Sangha. And that when people are friendly with you, you'll be friendly back with them. And when people are honest and friendly with you, and not just honest, but honest with friendliness, then you will be honest and friendly back with them. It waters that same seed inside of you. Mm -hmm. Right. And and, And and so... and if you go back to that earlier example of, of prison, for example, most people in prison, their early childhood was filled with suffering, with pain, with abuse, with, and it just, you know, the, 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 the karma of that just unfolds. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And in that regard, we can say that karma or that karma is not something magical in the air. No. But it is repetition of behavior and repetition of feelings. It's the uh-huh. action and reaction and reaction and reaction and sure, acting and reacting the same way to new stimulus. In, in a way, in a way, at least at the, in my current understanding, karma or karma is kind of a manifestation of dependent origination. It's the movement of, of cause and effect, basically, on a mass scale um, or interdependence as well. Um, no, not some magical ethereal thing but very literal mm-hmm. very literal teaching comma is a very literal thing and an un, unavoidable it's it's there yeah um well that's going back then to that concept that we had about the duty to the dhamma yeah. and a lot of action is not duty to the dhamma and because of that we suffer the consequences of it but we're in that habit of doing that action. And so we continue to act and react and react the same old way, getting the same old unsatisfying results. I know know nothing about that. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is what the whole thing about is change. Can you change? If you think you can change, you can change. And and in fact, um, here's an example that's really kind of profound, and that is, is that I know old senior monks that are absolutely marvelous human beings, the kind of guys you'd really want to live with and spend your time with. Never meditated a day in his life. Doesn't even think that it's part of the path. And why is that? Is because he became a monk, never mind why he became a monk, but he became a monk, possibly with the idea of not staying long, but then he sort of to fit, uh, fall in and fit in. And because he has remained around other nobles, he has, as he grew up in the Sangha, spending years with the only role models and only examples he had was of high quality people, he began to pick up those things on his own without having to work really hard at doing it. Sure, sure. And and, and again, another what, um, reason why the Sangha, where, where in, the, in the normal world, you're bombarded with so many stimulus that are, you know, often- Unhopeful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where in the Sangha, if you're in a if you're in a community of people who are aware 
it's, it's where you're constantly bombarded from the outside with the wholesome that kind of leaks in because in fact it that's how we got so unwholesome in the first place is because in our childhood we were bombarded with a lot of unwholesome stuff that as you say that people who wind up in prison had an extra duty dose of it and a way of looking at that is, is that, it, uh, for instance, if a child is raised in a household that is violence, that if brothers or sisters or husband and wives or uh, adults beating children, but if there's violence in the house, then when that child grows up, more than likely his environment will be violent. Yeah. Yeah. If there was a lot of alcohol use in a house, then that child will grow up either a lush, an alcoholic, or a teetotaler who is adamant against it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this is how it is, is that we're raised, that if you're raised in a prison, you'll probably grow up living in one someday. But we can change. Yeah. That's the important part, is, is that your past in a way is only relevant when you continue to repeat it. But when you stop repeating the past and start living in this present moment and doing the things and the duties of this present moment rather than the duties of the past, you wind up being in a different state of mind. And this is amazing and an important point is, is that that young man that we talked about that never meditated, but he just maintained and stayed with the monkhood because he knew that it was valuable for him to do that, that he was better off there, and that he was getting an environment that was much more wholesome for him than if he had quit the monkhood and gone to join the mob or something. Mm -hmm. right. Okay, so he knew then that staying in the Sangha was going to have a marvelous effect upon him. So he knew that he would change. Okay, that's an important point. That's, in fact, the key ingredient. This is the first fetter. This is the big issue. Is uh, Does the individual have the attitude of whether they can change? Can they get out of their stuff or what not? Is, what is this referring to, faith? Is this the, uh, well, no, it's actually uh, the, the, in the Pali, or, uh, the Pali translation, we refer to it as personality view. Okay. And this is where everything to do uh, with the way society is training us. And then he gives some examples of what I mean by that. These are just one of or several of many examples. Within Christianity, they have the teaching that only God is good. Who are you to be good? That you're broken merchandise, that you're um, uh, original sin, and that you can't save yourself from your sin, that you have to get help from it. You have to have a plastic Jesus to put on the dashboard of, on, of your truck or you're going to wreck your truck, sure. right? Sure. But it's going to be the plastic Jesus that keeps you from wrecking the car. Yeah. This is the teaching of Christianity, right? Yeah. You can't change and you can see how that's deeper in our society and in the depths of the society. You hear it in uh, leopards can't change their spots. The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Boys will be boys. It's, it's almost a robbery of the soul. 
That's exactly right. The soul is a permanent, everlasting thing. Well, well, I mean, well, I, maybe this is mixing languages, but what, what I meant more so, it's it's a robbery of Buddha nature, if you will, but to 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 give people the conception of reality that, that I mean that you that you're beheld and beholden to a, a plastic Jesus, right? I mean that's, and and I I would go and argue that I mean I'm not I'm not a Christian or, or Catholic, but having had a long dialogue with a Trappist monk now. I, I don't think that's what was ever really meant, right? That's the mis that just like Buddhism gets misconstrued. I think a lot of these teachings become very cancerous and and uh, destructive. Yes. Uh, perhaps it may be fruitful at a, at a future time for us to go into the differences between what Jesus said and what Christianity has become. Sure. Because that is exactly what's happened with Buddhism, but not nearly as uh, a complete a transformation. Uh, yeah, the B Buddhism definitely, as far as I understand too, still has a core that's much stronger. But I've heard people say that the Buddha was a flying god, or that the Buddha was a was a was a, a forty foot tall golden man. You know, madness, right? Yeah, exactly the same kind of stories you hear about Jesus. <laughs> But when the Buddha explicitly says, you know, I, I am a man. I would I'm... go I would go so far as to say much of the really heavy duty magic that happened for the Buddha happened after the people who were already interested in Buddhism in, in their culture were introduced to Christianity and what the Christians were saying about their yeah. big plastic Jesus. And they would come up with, well, our Buddha is as big as your big plastic sure. Jesus. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, yeah. And so magic is matched with magic for magic. ordinary people. Yeah, the the magic thing has never been something I've been drawn to. I, I was never into the cities when I was in when I was in India. I was not looking for the, you know, I I really wanted to come to closer to reality. I guess. Guess what? I am really really big on the cities. Okay. Okay. Mostly uh, as a side point, uh, the Pali word is not city; it's actually itty. Or itia, itia, uh, itia, uh, pada is the foundations of power. There is real power in the Dhamma. I, I don't, I don't, I, I, I've had moments of experiencing things that I would be permiss to say are, are just average normal okay. experiences. I meant more so the idea of, well, again, maybe, maybe who knows, but mm. when I first, when I was studying yoga, they talk about the ability to levitate or the ability to. Um, yeah, all you have to do is feel really light, and there you are, you're light. <laughs> but I, but I, I'm levitating right now. <laughs> 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 but it's a different kind of power. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. And that it's the ordinary mind or the low class mind that misunderstand these metaphors yes. as physical reality. And then they get completely disappointed because um, basically there's a, a mistake that we make. And that mistake is, is that I am actually not able to feel the way that I want to feel because I couldn't do that when I was a child. I felt according to the way the circumstances required me to feel. 
So if I'm a little child put in a room all by myself at night, then that sets me up to be fearful because I want the comfort of being in mommy's bed, but daddy doesn't want me in mommy's bed. He wants me in my own room, right? And so I'm being rejected already. And so you can hear that starting when we're really little that we begin to believe that the environment is in control of our feelings. So we do things like buying goods to make us feel good. You've heard about people shopping till they drop or that we go for hobbies or things like that to give us pleasure. People go to sports events because they get a big thrill out of the football players who make the touchdown. We, 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 we lose the connection to our own capacity to, to moderate feel. our mind. Yeah. Exactly. That in I, fact, I, we are in charge of our own feelings anyway. Yes. And, so you, and you can see that. You can see that where, for example, two, two children or two people and, and like one child goes to the dark room and is upset that they're not in their mother's bed. And another kid goes to their, their room alone and thinks about Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Kid thinking about Star Wars is happy. Kid thinking about his mother is sad. And so it's not the room. It's the mind. It's the mind. It's that is the mind. Different. Sure. I, I, I want to back to like just one second before too, where I think another one of the things that is commonly done in, in modern times is we devalue the present moment without realizing the sacredness in the present moment. And so we look forward to some kind of magical, you know, milk and honey day or place without realizing as again, as Thich Nhat Hanh, who's just passed said so beautifully, the, the the miracle of mindfulness is now like the, the buddha land is now um it, it, or, or as um as dogen said right you are already the buddha you just mm. you just don't remember you know uh, dogen in, in japan yes um, that that actually is kind of an important point because most people start to practice of meditation because they want something they are dissatisfied. They can <laughs> see some dukkha. Sure, sure. Okay. And that there's actually several ways to do it, but the important point to recognize is that you can be at the absolute top. You can be at the pinnacle. Example of that was the Buddha. When he was 29, he was a prince. He was an, an elephant trainer. He was a marksman. He uh, had studied the Vedas. He was uh, the best dude in the area. He even had his own all-girl band. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he had it all. <laughs> he had it all, and he was still dissatisfied. Sure. The other example is the alcoholic that hits rock bottom before he finally figures out that he's dissatisfied. He's got to do something new. Yeah. And so there, you can be at either end of that continuum of the dukkha, the question is, is when and where are you going to wake up to the dukkha? Sure. Some of us have to clean, climb to the absolute pinnacle and be in the best, very best of shape. And then we realize that, hey, this is a bunch of crap. Or I'm we still... can go to the rock bottom before we can say, hey, this is a bunch of crap. Yeah, and I think I think that points back to the very beginning of the conversation, the the the, the truth of Dhamma. The truth mm-hmm. that, you know, even if you are in that hedonistic state and have everything, or if you're at the very rock bottom, there's an there's a fundamental dissatisfaction because 
humanity is not simply the persona we project it to be. Uh -huh. Humanity is part of something immeasurable. And that, that desire, that suffering, you could say is man's, as Carl Jung said, man's search for meaning, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. the soul or the, or the Buddha nature knowing that something is missing. You know, that pain is a Precise. gift. Exactly, exactly. So we kind of see that there's a built-in longing or there a built-in emptiness that we have. That's what caused us to go off into things that allowed us to become the very top of the world or to hit rock bottom. But the, the mistake that we make is, is that we think that it's the rock that we bottomed that caused our suffering. Yes, yeah. Okay, yeah. and so uh, that's the basic turning that's, that's, around is that first noble truth of there is dukkha. You because say, a lot of sorry. go ahead. Well, you just you just gave me an image. Uh, like if if you think of it in terms of a linear scale, you start at that middle point with with the dhamma awake, the, the child, you know, in in that arm of awake of, of awareness, and the moment you begin either climbing craving or aversion, right? Clinging mm -hmm. or aversion. So, but if you want to use that language, but you're going up to the top of that scale to the, to the, to the top or to the bottom as an alcoholic, the suffering began the moment you started going away. It was not the, the bottoming out or the top. It was the very moment that the, that being itself started relating to reality in a disharmonious way. Uh -huh. And that, that perpetuates that pull and it's and like you said, you think it's the rock. I hit the rock, and the rock hurt me, but the rock was not the gravity pulling you. It was that disunion um, mm -hmm. propelling? And just the rock, you can't go further than the rock, basically. But the rock doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Guess what? No, I don't think there is a bottom to it. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah, well, well, clearly, clearly, you can go pretty fucking low. Yeah, people can go really, really fucking low and still not learn anything, and they've only got one place to go from there, and that is even more downhill. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, yes. So. This is the whole point, though, is, is that most of them have the quality of, but that's who I am and I can't change. I need help. I need an AA. I need a religion. I need a guru. I need a psychologist. I need a pill. I need, I need, I need, I need, which is just more of the same old thing that they were into in the first place. Which would, oh God, that's great. That's that's great. It's it's a mis it's a it's a reattribution of the same fundamental problem. I'm oh. looking for this to solve that. Now I'll go there. But but you're also making me think of, of the Dhamma itself, of the Eightfold Path, the very first the right view or right understanding. And if you have that if you have that flawed view, internal and external, you'll always be kind of chaotically smashing around. Mm -hmm. And like you say, to realize that you can change. I keep coming back to. Thich Nhat Hanh, just with everything that's going on recently, but if I view myself from the Western persona as this man with this little history, I'm trapped into this story, this narrative. But the moment you have that that you know that that opening and realizing that what you are is not just this little story, there's this huge leadway to then change course. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The the the, the, the self. And again, it's one of those kind of often said, maybe not always understood, but kill the ego. 
um, if you're if you're defined into reality from that very narrow prism and prison, you can't change course. You need, like you said, to find something else because there's nowhere to move. But mm -hmm. those both those boundaries are 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 you know yeah. Well, so then maybe we can say it this way that the that the major major awakening the first thing that someone has to wake up to is not the first noble truth that that dukkha does exist but that uh, because many people think that it's life itself that sucks i mean oh. that was a bumper sticker in the 1980s life sucks and then you die and that's basically the atheist position is, is that life sucks and Christians are wrong trying to find something to suck on. Yeah, yeah. All right. But when we recognize, no, the second noble truth, actually the cause of suffering is, is that we're sucking. That yes. life sucks because we're <laughs> sucking on something. Yeah, and yeah, if we yeah. would stop sucking, then life wouldn't suck. The fun being itself is not the problem. It's our relationship to being. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, that we want things, that we have greed. And by the way, ill, uh, you've heard like moba lohadosa, greed, ill will, and delusion are the three elements of the uh, second noble truth. But it's good to understand that it's like electricity, positive and negative. But it doesn't matter which direction the electrons go. Do the electrons go from positive to negative or negative to positive? The answer to that is it doesn't matter. It's shocking in both directions. Right? So if I want something and want to get it, then I'm dissatisfied because I don't have it. But if I have something that I'm dissatisfied with, then I want to get rid of it. So it doesn't matter whether it's greed or ill will, it's the same feeling of wanting or longing to either to get or to remove. And when we don't see that connection, that's ignorance. The ignorance is, is that uh, basically it's delusional. Would you, would you back that up again? Just say that last part again. Okay, that uh, when we do not see that no. greed and ill will are the same thing. All right, here's an example of that. You can see, uh, you've seen people do this. I remember uh, an uncle that had a quarter and he would take that quarter and balance it and then hit it and it would spin. And sure. while it's spinning, we cannot see the fact that it's got two faces on it. It's only when the the coin slows down and then lands, we can begin to see that, oh, that coin's got two faces. It's got a face of heads and a face of tails, mm -hmm. right? That's the second noble truth. Think of that uh, second noble truth for most people, that it's just a spinning coin and they don't know Okay. That greed and ill will are the same thing. You're saying, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that without the awareness or the, or the kind of penetration of insight, we look around the world and our suffering and we say, the world, that bumper sticker, life sucks and you're dead. And mm -hmm. we don't realize that it's actually made up of this faceted, these, these conditions that we are causing 
that are causing the suffering. And so, is that mm -hmm. kind of what you're saying? Because exactly. life, life is almost going so quickly and our relation to it so unaware that we just think that this is all there is. You know, right. 80 years in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a graveyard, basically, and, and everything between. And if you view it that way, it makes sense to escape. Hedonism mm -hmm. makes sense. If it's all fucking misery and no <laughs> way out, you know, then what are you going to do? But but if you, but if you're saying if you slow down that quarter, you then can say, oh wait a minute, these these quality as the Buddha taught these aspects create the first suffering dukkha, mm -hmm. and I can change that. I can do something differently. I can relate differently. I can act. Yes, that yeah. in fact we can bring that spinning quarter to a stop, as it were, and rest for a minute. Or we can think of the spinning mind. We can let yep. that come to a rest sure. and take a breath and relax in, in the moment. And that then would be the third noble truth. Now, a lot of people think, oh, the third noble truth is a one-time event. It's either you never have it and then something pops and then you always have it. That's the basic idea of enlightenment for most people. Yeah. It's either dead or alive. I've had Other some pretty than, powerful moments and I've, I've definitely fallen away. Uh-huh. Uh, but the, the real point is, is that you can be free from suffering when you stop suffering. You can be free from sticking yourself with a needle. All you have to do is stop sticking yourself with a needle. It's easier said than done. <laughs> uh, it's actually easier done than said. And, and it's actually interesting. Uh, just to notice that my mind, I, I agree with you. I do agree with you, Donorato, and I, I hear you. But my mind wants to defend that it's difficult to do. My my consciousness wants to say. Well, that's no, just no. an old habit. Well, that's what I'm you're trying just to say. Repeating, you're just repeating an old habit. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm just pointing it out. Like, wait, look at that. Look Which at is that. and and you're in the habit of sticking yourself with that particular needle. That this but, is hard. But to point it out, though, like that. That is a very interesting, you know, why argue that? Why argue that it's hard to stop? Why not just say, oh. Yeah. 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 Ah, it, we say it's hard to stop because we have the basic attitude of a victim or a failure. Yeah. We start off that way as a child. Every child is completely dependent upon his environment. If his mother doesn't care for him and nurturing, that child will die. Yeah. And we have that built right into our genes. Okay, but we misunderstand it and we uh, get a sense of a feeling of separation from our family at the time when mommy stops her nurturing and puts us in school and tells us, okay, when you were two and three, it was okay for you to play, but now you got to do your ABCs. Now you got to do your homework. Now you got to perform. You got to do what you're told to do, to go along, to get along. In other words, the child has to become socialized. All right. And for every one of us, it is a painful, traumatic experience that almost no one ever gets over. That's the real post-traumatic stress disorder is the stressfulness that we went through by being a child raised in the society that we're in. And having having the the, the animal instinct beat out of us. Mm. I, I know, Actually, I know. 
Worse than that, no, the animal instinct is not beat out of us. The, uh, the, the animal instinct is burdened down. Yeah, sure, sure. I, I, I know it's loaded down with work to do that. In yes. fact, this is what the Buddha talks about when in the, the four woeful states that no doubt you've heard about the Asuras and the uh, 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 Pritas, the hungry ghost. And one of them is the woeful animal. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the one that Westerners are most commonly in that woeful state of being an animal. And what that is, is going along to get along, doing what you're told to do kind of expecting a reward but the reward is always off into the future you don't get the cookie now sure sure i i i was late gratification is in fact that animal state and that we go along to get along instinctually so in fact our instincts are used against us yes and and what i what i meant by the animal actually was more of a um like a a reverence for the animal uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, I believe, says the divine animal, not not in a kind of derogatory as Western mind often. The animal is kind of condemned, but the the animal that is sacred, the animal that is in union with existence, um, is kind of the animal. The animal that is alive. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly. what's sacred is being exactly. alive. Exactly. The the animal that that feels the, the dew on the grass on a bare foot and feels the visceral joy of a single soul. consciously alive yeah yeah that's yeah. what it's all about so this is what we're in fact we're waking back into is that um feeling of awe of aliveness that we had when we were little children when we were nurtured and allowed to experience that instead of living a life of a dumb animal that's been put to work so that the animal doesn't have a chance okay so the example would be here you have a young pony that is in a pasture and that that pasture has all kinds of interesting different flowers it's got some milkweed and it's got some uh hard grass and it's got some delicious grass but just all kinds of stuff in that whole pasture area and then without him knowing it the farmer puts a um, harness on that horse and makes that poor horse pull a plow and he plows up his own pasture. And then the horse does not get the benefit of the fruit of the plowing work that he's done because the farmer plants the food the farmer wants and the horse is left with hay. How many of us live that life? All right, and that's what we mean by being the dumb animal. We're hooked up to a plow and told if you don't work, you don't eat. But you were pulled out of your paradise in order to be told that. And and you will get your two weeks off of of vacation a year and uh, exactly you can can have your beer every night. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's it. And so we are raised that way. And so it's very easy uh, for us then to give ourselves the, uh, the recurring thought of you don't work, you don't eat. And so one student said that he uh, was having a really, really nice time practicing out upon Asati. And then a cell phone pops up with an SMS message from his boss saying that all because of recently COVID has uh, started up again, we're uh, stopping work. 
stay home, don't come in like that. And immediately he begins to have the feeling of, oh no, what's to become of me? Oh, I'm losing my job. But a better thing to say would be, whoopee, another day off. Ah, so why is it that we torture ourselves with the possibility of things going bad? This is about the, uh, an example or the, the phrase that is used is what about ism? Mm-hmm. When we say, oh, well, I can sit here and be happy. But what happens if the, if the house gets on fire? Shouldn't I be in there making sure that the house is not? Well, the house is not on fire. Oh, but the house is on fire inside the mind. Right. This is what what possibly could go wrong with your life and how many people are going around trying to make sure that nothing goes wrong in their life. These people are actually when they're caught by the psychologists are put in the prison called um, obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. So um, here we are in this four noble truths of understanding that it is in fact our delusion about how things really are that prevents us from being okay in this particular moment. Why do we have to have dukkha or dissatisfaction when we can have satisfaction? And when we understand that we can have it, but that we have been so practicing for so long dissatisfaction that that seems to be the uh, the side of the coin that will fall so that we always kind of wind up with tails. But if we're more careful, we can have the tail the head anyway. All right. And so this is where the the Eightfold Noble Path comes in, and that is the actual practice. That will wind us up in the third noble truth instead of winding us up in the first noble truth and not knowing how we got there. And so this is what the Eightfold Noble Path is really all about. Now, one of the uh, things that you mentioned at one time was about right view. And I'd like to point uh, this out that in the suttas, wrong view is a world view. Okay, and basically that world view is, is that I can get away with it. But underlying that is, is that I want a bunch of crap and I'm going to go get that bunch of crap and I can get away with getting that bunch of crap. When you say get, get away with get away with um, with what harming people. Yeah, you can get away with uh, with taking things that are not given or lying or, or lying. Right. That in fact, that's the whole show is, is that basically that there is that no I, retribution. I can, I, there is no big common machine in the sky watching me. God's going to let me get away with it. I'm going yeah. to get some mercy here. Rather I need some that's, grace. That's <laughs> the view that comma or karma is is some chalkboard in the sky watching you rather than simply put that there is there is cause and effect and whatever is done will have an effect inevitably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So um, basically now that means that Ordinary right view is also a concept. And that is uh, basically we can say that, oh, no, you can't get away with it because there is this comma thing going on with uh, uh, comma vipaka, which means uh, uh, retribution or the results of your actions. Or there is the fruit of your actions. Uh, 
so you have this basic war within society between those who were trying to get away with it so they can get what they want and those the the ones who become authoritarian say no we're going to stop you from getting what you want mm -hmm. and we're going to make rules and we're going to hire armies and we're going to uh um uh, build, get a police force and, and, right and we're going to build prisons and if that doesn't stop you from doing what you want to do and do what we want you to do then we're going to hire a priest <clears throat> <laughs> and so uh you have one group basically you can say it's the adults in the room or not the adults but the parents in the room that are trying to force the kids to do the right thing for the kids don't want to do the right thing according to what the parents want they're wanting to follow their greed or to follow their heart okay and so then you could say that noble right view or the super mundane right view would be then the real adult in the room and in this case it's not a world view in this case we change it from a noun into a verb it's not a, a right area view or sama area ditti actually is a verb to look to investigate to examine not to hold a position or hold a view but to view to look to investigate to see what's going on right now that's what right noble view is all about so you're saying to, to kind of be constantly evaluating or penetrating right. okay. that as soon as you come to a conclusion, what? we generally stop investigating and we hold that conclusion while circumstances change. And which means that now we're based yeah. upon old rotten information yeah. that think and, the situation have changed. And, and you're and you're and you're viewing everything through a lens that was from the past rather than constantly basically rather than seeing constantly seeing mm -hmm. would, would you say there's also an element of so you have you have the normal right view or the relative right view but then a more um if you if you begin to perceive elements of beyond self no self right and and interdependence and, and this kind of greater scale beyond the individual I, would that then be more of a right view? Well, let's begin to talk about that a little bit later in the sense of what is self and not self. Believe me, Western Buddhism, self and not self is highly overrated. Mm -hmm. It's way too much I, of a big issue. I, I, like without, without There's basically to nothing ahead. to it. But in fact, we can break it back down to the point of a self is that which will not and cannot change because of fear. What, what, what I was and no self and no self is that there is no self, uh, which means there is no limit to changing that so, one so can what, change. What, what, I, what I meant by the self was more so I can function in the belief that I'm this guy with a green shirt on and, and a hat and, and, you know, where I, you can function realize, without believing that. <laughs> but if I, but if I get, begin to realize that I'm an aspect of the cosmos, basically, right. And this body will pass away and, and, and the liquid in my blood will kind of one day. Ah, be in a rib, 
but the way these... that we're looking at this in the sense of looking at it is is that that is something that you can look at and see but when you think of yourself that's a concept sure and it's rigid it's fixed but viewing you can see that no everything really is fluid in this yes. present moment that's yes. actually the noble view yes. is to that, watch and watch the fluidity of what's really changing right that's, now that's what i meant that's what i meant and if and if you if you perceiving the world through that fluidity right then then that would be a correct view of of mm -hmm. yes. well no that would be in a correct observation okay okay and so that's the whole idea is, is that we have to take it out of the, the conceptualized noun into the verb of looking. Yes. Keep looking. Okay. Now, here's the question. When do we look? The answer is when we remember to look. Sure. When we remember to look, this is the relationship between sati and ditti that we remember to look, we remember to wake up, to look, which means something that we've got to do in the here now. Conceptualization, something that's come from the past, and when we're repeating that conceptualization, we're in the past. Yeah. But when we stop conceptualizing and think we know what it is and actually look at it, we have to remember to do that. We have to remember to stop thinking about it and start looking at it instead. Okay, and that when we directly look at it, we can look at it with a discerning eye in the sense of is this correct or is this not correct? Or is this useful, valuable and wholesome? Or is it just more junk? This is the discernment then that the Buddha talks about in the sense of right, noble effort to take the effort to throw the unwholesome thoughts out of the mind in this moment, this thought, and to replace it with wholesome thoughts right here in this moment. So this is what the Eightfold Noble Path is all about. And it starts off, the, uh, the sutta starts off uh, by the Buddha saying that I will teach you right unification of mind with its supports and features. So right now we're talking about the supports. And we're talking about totality too, unification, wholeness. Um, well, the unification of one's mind means that we're no longer a crowd. How can we be a crowd? Well, if I'm lying to myself, I'm a crowd. I'm the truth and the lie. All right. If I'm in doubt, is it this, is it that, then whatever this might be or that might be, I become that. There's also generally an internal dialogue that is um, going in the sense of this is the rule. And then the statement is said, this is the rule. And then the answer that I don't want to do that right now. And this is normally between the parent and the child. So the parent is out there or the right noble view, excuse me, the right ordinary view is this is the rule. Yeah. Okay. And that the child is then the, um, the wrong view of, I don't want to do your rule. Yeah. Okay. And they're, and they're so reactionary to each other. Here's an example of that, Ben. Gawanka says that when uh, to do anapanasati, you watch the breath. You watch the in-breath, then you watch the out-breath. And then he says, and then if the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. 
But the Western mind's not going to do that. That when the Western mind recognizes that the mind wanders away, that parent ego state's going to come up and says, you did wrong. You sure. should have been watching your breath. Why weren't you doing what you were told to do? Yeah. And then the answer to that is bad feeling. And we're just doing the same old thing that we've always been doing. Okay. The right thing to do is just to wake up and say, Hey, I, uh, I left, I left the breast. Never mind. Start again. I can handle this. Mm-hmm. And so we start back into the wholesome, but very few of us do that. We will go from one unwholesome thought to another wholesome thought, or sometimes we go from a wholesome thought into an unwholesome thought about the wholesome thought. Yeah. And that sounds so simple. Um, almost childlike simply all you're saying is don't don't condemn the mind for losing itself right but, don't but be that, critical of yourself be nurturing but but that simple action echoes like all like all comma and slowly builds to where well it, it didn't it, slowly it, it build almost, it just repeated over and yeah, over again yeah. okay it almost it almost comes back to the idea of the sangha that you we began this whole conversation talking about where the rehabilitation of a monk is done in the, in the mirror and not, not by throwing one under the bus, but if, and if we can't do that to ourselves as well, to be, mm-hmm. to be a brother to the self. Um, yeah. Right. We have to nurture each other. That's what Sangha is all about is nurturing ourselves. Here's, here's actually a funny kind of example about that that when western teenagers or let us say you've got uh one group of teenagers at four five or six or seven mixed uh sex in thailand and again in america and each group is just going down the street having fun doing whatever and then in each group one of them slips down and fall the westerners will go oh are you hurt or they make some sort of derisive laughter about it like you're an idiot you can't walk okay the ties when someone slips and falls everybody will laugh including the guy who fell down it's a great big joke never mind it's okay there's no problem here so what for the western group is going to be a problem the thai kids don't see it as a problem at all All right, so we can actually begin to recognize that, oh, we have a choice as to is this yeah. a problem or is it not? And, and there's if, and no if problem here just because the mind wandered away from the breath. That's no problem. That's what minds do. And if, and if we don't, if we don't create the problem, the problem's not there. At least no, that problem. At least they that never problem. did. Right. They did. Problems don't exist. Yeah. What exists is the creation of a problem inside one's mind when someone creates the problem then there's a problem let's say the, the problems that do exist would be where you are in dis, disharmony with the dhamma but like mm. you say these these extra sufferings are are not real that's the creation of the ah that's because we're not doing our duty to the dhamma that we wind up in suffering the duty to the Dhamma is to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and go that's, back to the breath. And that's a beautiful point. And, and so even that, yeah, yeah, okay, sure. And so when we begin to practice these three things over and over and over again, which is to wake up and take a look at what you're doing, and then make a change to that. We do that over and over and over again, but that right effort is to make a change and to come out of whatever we're in and, and come back to uh, 
no, nothing much at all. Then the fourth aspect of the Eightfold Noble Path kicks in, and this is called Sama Sankapa, which has to do then with the right attitude of, uh, I can do this. And then there comes a point, in fact, the very first step of the Noble Path is when the student has so much confidence that he knows that no matter what hindrances, what obstructions, or whatever events come into this present moment, he can handle it. He's got confidence. Now, in our language, we would call it self-confidence, and then the Buddhist will get all hair on fire about the word self, when in fact that's not an issue. Okay, but in fact, we can say that, yes, you do want to build self-confidence because sure. self-confidence is not selfish. Sure, no. Sure. Okay, that uncompetence, incompetence is really selfish. Okay, to be in a victim state and being incompetent is a very selfish place to be. Yes. And, it, and, it and it's harm. a dangerous place, and it causes yourself harm and other people's harm. But when when you are, in fact, uh, on top of your own world, when then there's no problem. You then function. you can function. Yeah. A student once said uh, this. They said that um, everyone is an emperor of their own pile of dirt. Imagine that. Every one of us is an emperor of our own pile of dirt. The question is, are you going to be buried under your pile of dirt? Are you going to be madly scrambling, trying to get out of your pile of dirt, which is the meditator? Are you just going to sit on top of your world? Your choice. Many people choose to be buried under the world. Oh, poor me. Oh, I've got so much work to do. Oh, I'm a busy businessman. You know, that kind of mentality. And then those that are madly scrambling, trying to get out, get some air. But then all of this is just attitude. We can, in fact, just take on the attitude. We don't actually have to climb out of anything. We can stop thinking that we've got to climb out of something because you're already on top of your world. All you have to yeah. do is just see that. And again, this this goes back to Dogen. Dogen saying, you know, you all you are already the Buddha. You just yeah. have to. Remember, exactly. That's remember. a very important Zen teaching that yeah. why strive for anything? This yes. is Zazen. This is yeah. just sitting. This is, you this don't is have to do around. anything. Yeah. 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 But but I guess that striving, that st appropriate striving is is the is taking is the, a the, bad translation. But it's taking it's, that it's, it's taking Take it's, use this and striving is intense for a short period of time. Look at the word instead as persistence, easy sure. persistence. Sure, sure. We don't have to strive at all. We just sustain and keep coming yes. back and keep coming yes. back and keep coming back. Why? Because the old habits of the mind are very slow to change. But if you keep coming back and keep coming back and keep persisting, then it will change. If you strive, then you'll give up in failure and get nowhere. And and you even if you frantically strive against something, you almost reinforce what it's it's Mara, it's Buddha and Mara, right? Buddha's exactly. confrontation with Mara was not the the battle against nor running from, but simply the the presence. Recognition, right. Yeah. Aha, I see you, Mara. See you, and Mara. what he's doing is he's recognizing the Mara or the unwholesome thoughts in his own mind. 
Yes, but but and that and that he no longer needed to tame the flesh in asceticism to kind of surpass it. That 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 those things could be, and without responding to them, they're no longer monsters. They they simply, they simply the the arrows become flowers, right? Mm-hmm. So in that regard, then our fear, the negative feelings, no longer are monsters when we make friends with them. Yes. I've just begun that in my practice in the last five, six months, and it has been revolutionary. It changed mm-hmm. quite a lot. Yeah. Yes, this is the way that we practice is, is that we make a change from the way that we've been doing it out of the unwholesome. And the skill is developing is to how to look, how to see, and how to determine what's wholesome and what's not wholesome. And so this is something that uh, many students will ask, well, how do I know the distinction between what is wholesome and what is not wholesome? That's the job of insight for each individual student to keep looking and keep investigating and keep examining until they begin to see what is unwholesome that they can throw out. And every time they see something that's unwholesome, they can throw that out. And whatever they've got left is there ready for more evaluation, more investigation. And, and so and that, and that and that requires you to be the light upon yourself to really take on that mantle of not just abdicating responsibility, but saying, OK, I will look, I will, I will be conscious, I will practice. Mm-hmm. And I will enjoy what I see. Yeah, yeah. Doing it with joy. Rather than being miserable with it. Yes, this is <laughs> this is the whole point about yeah. the gladdening the mind or the wholesome, that we can't just see it. Yeah. What I, it is, that's not enough. We've got to throw it out and put something in the mind instead, which is much better than that. Hmm. Now, how, that do, was, how do you recommend changing out qualities of mind? You know, because ah, you can't you force just, against them. You can't push them out. But what, what is the Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Exactly so. And and it takes right effort to do that. But in the beginning, we have to put a lot of effort in it. But as we get, uh, um, let us say, as several factors come together, and the factors that we're talking about is how much enthusiasm do you have? How much skill have of putting in right effort do you have? And also what kind of attitude that you have? And so attitude and the skill of right effort and enthusiasm begin to run and circle around each other to make the right effort become actually energizing. That we just naturally, as soon as we remember to be good, we just take a deep breath and feel good. We don't have to work at it at all. But in the beginning, we have to actually work at it because we're so much in the habit of feeling bad. We're so much in the habit of having uh, critical thoughts, critical thoughts or judgment thoughts, thoughts of this is good and this is greater and this is worse and, and comparisons. And nurturing is nurturing in the sense of whatever that little young baby is doing, that's fine. It's absolutely okay. What's happening right now is absolutely okay. This is good enough. This is the kind of behavior attitude that we need to gain 
rather than hating what our thoughts are, we can say, aha, I see you, and then change it. Mm-hmm. So we so, become so simply friends. by not by not Sorry. fighting. Mm-hmm. By stop fighting with our thoughts and start uh, intentionally having nurturing thoughts instead. Yeah. Yeah. To nurture ourselves. Well, I'm glad I thought of that. Or another one was, well, I'm glad I don't have to think about her anymore. Imagine that you're having, let us say that the story is that the guy walks into the meditation hall at the meditation hour and sits down with everybody else. But he's just come out of an argument with his girlfriend. And so there he sits in meditation, but he's going to have the girlfriend on his mind. He's going to keep that argument going. He's going to think about things that he's going to say to her. And he's going to think about finishing that argument so that he wins. But all of the input that he's having and all the things that he can think of, it's got nothing to do with what she might say. And so he goes to her to finish the argument. He's got winning points and she doesn't even know what she's going to say back to him. And she says something back that just throws a big monkey wrench into his uh, plans for winning that argument. And so now he goes back into the meditation hall again. If he had gone into that meditation hall with the idea of thinking about the girlfriend, he could have changed those thoughts to, well, I don't have to argue with her. She's a good friend of mine. It doesn't matter who wins that argument. What imag- what's important is, is our relationship is good. Let me have good, wholesome, happy thoughts about her instead of having angry, winning thoughts about her. Okay, so this is the way that we can see it, that a lot of people say, well, why are you thinking about the girl at all in meditation? Shouldn't you be meditating? Yes, but you don't have the skill of no mind yet. You're going to have thoughts. The question is, are you going to be able to choose what kind of thoughts you're going to have? You're going to have loving, wholesome, happy thoughts of friendship and community. Are you going to have thoughts of winning an argument? So we begin to change the way we think. Here's another example, a very clear example, that you're driving down the road and all of a sudden it's evening time and you can see the uh, uh, the lights red and blue flashing all inside your car while you hear the siren sound and you know immediately that you're being pulled over by a cop. How do you feel? Terrified. Okay. So when the cop comes up to the window and tells you to, win- to roll your window down, how do you feel? Nervous. All right, okay. And so that that cop's going to see that nervousness and he'll put his hand on his gun. And that really terrifies you. And so you start acting really stupidly and he pulls the gun out and shoots you. How many times has that happened? So, exactly. People get busted because they don't know how to be in the moment. Sure. That if you could take a deep breath while that cop is coming back and saying, hey, I can handle this cop. There's absolutely no problem here. In fact, I can do this. And so when the window rolls down, hello, officer, I'm so glad to see you. I've heard so much good stuff about your police force. You're out here on duty, and I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. What can I do for you tonight, officer? Now, if you approach him in a very happy way, 
whatever happens, he's probably not going to have any trouble with you. It's likely he won't even give you a ticket. But if you resist him in any way, he might pull you out of the car and have you on the ground handcuffing you. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's all based upon your own attitude. So when you recognize that, wait a minute, we can control our environment with our attitude about things if we can remember, if we can wake up, when we can choose, I'm going to deal with this in a wholesome way, rather than choosing to deal with it the way that we feel. In that case, uh, being terrified of the cop means that your terror is going to drive your behavior. It's going to be in charge, and you're going to be ignorantly allowing your terror to be in charge when you need your adult instead. You do not need a terrified child dealing with a big, tough cop parent kind of thing. Sure. Sure. And in fact, when cops pull someone over as that window rolls down, somehow or another, diapers are created. They get that young. (laughs) Sure, sure. So. Um, this is the, the real teaching of the Eightfold Noble Path is, is that we need to have that right unification, right organization of the mind. And the way that we get that is by remembering to look at what's going on and to change it from unhappy into happy with the now the new fine attitude of I can do this. I'm a winner here. I'm the boss. I'm in charge of this situation. And I can deal with it easily. That's the winner's attitude. In fact, this is what we talk about in the sense of the Buddha was known as a lion. He he was in charge of his life. Okay. So you become a lion. You become a Dhamma lion. That's your duty is to lion up. Get strong. Get tough. Get where you know that you can handle anything because all you're really ever needing to handle is wholesome anyway. I mean, it's really dead easy to handle only wholesome. And so if you've got only wholesome, your life is really easy. And 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 to reclaim that is to come back to life, basically. And you're I'm coming to back to life, you're coming again. back to that living that life of the yeah. sacred animal. Yeah. Really a lot. I, I, I am fallen asleep a little bit. Um, it's it's eleven o'clock here. Uh, this has been wonderful. C- could we could we speak again? Oh, absolutely. I I actually expect that. I don't like one time callers no, because yeah, they're not yeah. going to get any dharma. This stuff has to be rubbed in and rubbed no, I mean, in, I... and rubbed in over and over and over again. <clears throat> uh, with with you know like sangha that's what sangha is all about is getting into a healthy environment and letting that environment do its work for you i mean i i will say that throughout this conversation i felt in my chest in my heart like joy and gratitude um and so i would i would love to talk again all right well let's plan on you calling about once a week or so sounds great And I also invite you to get on the Sangha calls. We have one on Friday evening uh, that would be nine o'clock Eastern time. Is it Friday? It's the Skype on Skype. The same Skype right now. Well, it's uh, uh, look, uh, search for the Sangha US. I'll I'll learn the Sangha, S A N G H A, and you can find that in Skype. 
Those okay. are groups. We have groups open. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I will do that. I'll send you an email, and if you could send me the name to look for, could you do that, or could you, in the chat? Actually, maybe? I'll do. I'll just send it to you in chat, and yeah, uh, after we after we finish, because it's uh, uh, all right. Well, David, it's really uh, good to to meet you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been a pleasure, honestly. Uh, I'm I'm very grateful. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. We'll see you again soon. I look forward to it. Thank you, Damaratu. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.